Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. And let's pray before we open the word together this morning. Our Father, we come before you in humility this morning, recognizing that you are a creator, that you formed us from the dust of the ground. You have breathed life into us. You are not only our creator, but you are our sustainer. And if we have breath today, it is because you have given it. And if our bodies have any strength, it is because you are animating them. And we also confess that if there is any life in our spirit, it is because you have granted it. We pray this morning that you would be our sustainer. You would shine light into the midst of darkness. We would find that we not only have the breath of life this morning, but the spirit of life. And that it is enlivened within us. We hear your word read as we hear it preached. We pray all of this in the strong name of Christ, the one and only Savior of men. Amen. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, this is a holy, inerrant, sufficient Word of God. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace, help in time of need. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. One of the greatest struggles in the Christian life is the discouragement our minds are often filled with and that they begin to spiral down in when we face hard life circumstances. We face the pains and the miseries of this life. When we begin to, and to circle and begin to descend farther into that pit, often the question that runs through our minds is the question of, does God actually care? There's that moment on the Sea of Galilee in the Gospels where Jesus is in the boat with His disciples and this great storm arises on the Sea of Galilee, a violent storm, and in that storm the boat begins to fill with the water from the sea as the waves come crashing upon that boat and you have 
the wind that is howling and it feels like this entire boat is going to be swamped and that they are all going to die. And Remember, Peter looks over and he sees Jesus asleep in the stern of the boat. Peter sees his life flashing before his eyes and Jesus is asleep and he exclaims what many have found upon their minds and in their hearts, if not upon their lips, when it feels like all of life is being dashed before us with the trial that we are in. He says in that accusatory voice to the Lord Jesus Christ, Do you not care that we are perishing? Maybe God doesn't actually care. May not be life circumstances that solicit that kind of thought or that kind of confession from you. It may just be your struggle with sin. You feel like I have wanted this sin to be done in my life. I have continually cried out to God that this sin would no longer be part of my living. And yet, it feels like the temptation just keeps coming and coming and coming and I don't want it. Does He not care? Is He able? Is He willing to help? Recipients of this letter of the Hebrews, as we've discussed in previous weeks, they are facing persecution, they're facing suffering, they're facing even possible martyrdom for the sake of their faith. They've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, and now that they're facing persecution, it looks like Christ maybe isn't actually worth trusting. And they're tempted to go back to that old form of Judaism that they had abided by and that they lived by before they had come to know Christ as Lord and Savior. The questions are circulating in them, if not also among them. Does God really care? Is He worth continuing to trust in? And that is the single greatest temptation that any Christian faces. That question. writer of Hebrews knows this is an issue, and so he does what any good preacher would do. He just sets Christ before them. He's already made it clear in Hebrews 2.17 that the Son of God became flesh. He had to be made like His brothers in every respect, he tells us, so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest. He identifies with His people. He then represents His people upon the cross and He makes a propitiation for our sins. That that is, He bears the very wrath of His Father on the cross in our place. He is a perfect substitute for sinners. And then we are told in verse 14 of our text that He passed through the heavens. He is raised from the grave on that third day. And when He is raised from the grave, He then dwells on earth for a period of time. And then He ascends to the right hand of the Father. So the writer of Hebrews says here, He passed through the heavens. And He is now at the right 
hand of God. He has entered the holy of holies above. And it's that knowledge, knowing that Christ has ascended to the right hand of the Father, that He's entered into the holy of holies above, that the writer charges his readers and charges us, since we have a great high priest who even now is in the presence of God, let us hold fast our confession. Hold fast. But here's the question. Is Jesus worth holding fast to? Does He even care anymore for us? Does not the circumstances that these Hebrew Christians find themselves in, does that not tell them that Christ no longer cares for them? That He entered into His heavenly glory above. And that as He entered into that heavenly glory above and is exalted over all the heavens and over all the earth, to paraphrase John Owen, has He any concern for us in our weak and in our frail, and in our tempted sinning condition, has He forgotten us? At times, you may feel like it. And that's the question that the writer is wrestling with in verses 15 and 16. He wants us to understand, no matter what you may feel, the reality is, that He cares for His own. Our first of two points from the text this morning, only two points. First is this. Jesus sympathizes with our weakness. Jesus sympathizes with our weakness. The writer makes it clear that Christ has not stopped identifying with us upon His exaltation in heaven. He sympathizes even now with us. As we approach Christmas here in a couple weeks and we celebrate Christmas, our minds immediately run to the Incarnation, rightfully so. And I think often when we are thinking about the Incarnation, we think that the Son of God became, becoming flesh was a kind of momentary decision. That it was something that needed to happen and it did need to happen so that there could be that baby in a manger in the nativity scene. But, but it wasn't just for that. Sometimes we run and we say, well, it was so that he could live that earthly life for around 33 years. And so the incarnation was about that, that he lived on earth and was simply made flesh for those 33 years. The moment the Son of God adorned Himself with flesh, He became the God-man forever. He is now forever truly God and truly man. Though He passed through the heavens, He is still truly human. Though He sits enthroned above, He sits upon the throne as deity. He is not only there as sovereign God, he is there as perfected humanity. And that assumption of humanity informs His ministry 
as our high priest at the right hand of God now and tomorrow and forevermore. He sympathizes with us in our weakness. It leads him to, the writer says, to sympathize with us in our weakness. He wants us to understand this point. He actually uses a rhetorical rhetorical device that we will call a double negative. Just to emphasize this point to his readers and to you and I. We do this sometimes. For example, if a child woke up on Christmas morning and went in running to their parents' bedroom and kind of said in an angry tone, there aren't no presents under the tree. That would be a double negative. The parents might respond to that child, talking like that won't get you nowhere. That's a double negative. It's emphatic. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize. He's writing it in neon colors. He's flipping the lights off and on. He's getting a megaphone out and he's screaming it to you as loud as he can. Christ sympathizes with us because he knows our weakness. He knows it in that He has experienced it. He's lived it. He knows sorrow. He knows pain, fear, temptation, weakness. God, He is a great God. He is a merciful God. He he knows our weakness. He knows our frailty. He, He knows all But it is in the incarnation and the second person of the triune God coming down and adorning Himself with flesh that He adds knowledge upon knowledge that He who knows now even more knows. When I do premarital counseling, and I've done it over the years, over close to 20 years now, and sitting down with couples... I love to do it, and yet I think as I do it every time, I sit there and I'm telling them all of these joys that they're going to experience in marriage and all of the sorrows that they're going to experience in marriage and all of the pains that they're going to experience in in marriage. And then I tell them about the temptation that we all have in marriage to want to get our own way. As I tell them this, and they're shaking their heads up and down, I, I... know that they know what I'm talking about, but they don't know what I'm talking about. They will after they get married. They'll know. But they don't know. Jesus knows our weakness. Not hypothetically, but by experience. He was tried. He suffered. He was tempted. So the point of the writer of Hebrews is that now in his heavenly ministry as our high priest, his experience of weakness informs his ministry on 
our behalf. He sympathizes. This is a key. It's an absolute key for you and I to understand so that we keep trusting in God. As the writer says here, that we would hold fast our confession. You often hear people say they, they want a God who, who weeps with them, who mourns with them, who is sorrowful with them, who cries for them. You often hear that in pop Christian psychology today. God weeps with you. No, He doesn't doesn't weep with you. If anything can move God, if anything can affect God, then that thing has power over God. No, He is sovereign. He cannot be acted upon. He does not suffer. God is impassable. That is the name of the doctrine, the impassibility of God. That means that there is nothing that subjects God to suffering or pain or that acts upon Him. But this often leads people to accuse God of not understanding their pain and sorrow. But here's the absolute beauty of the incarnation and where it comes to bear. As Irenaeus, that second century theologian, said, he said, the impassable became passable in Christ. Now, does that mean that Christ weeps over our struggles or mourns with those who mourn? No. He doesn't either. Not now. To remember, He's above. He's in heaven. And there's no sorrow in heaven. He enjoys perfect peace and perfect joy and perfect harmony there. Does that mean he doesn't care? No, there is better comfort than what pop Christian psychology offers. He sympathizes in the sense that he understands. He knows and he remembers the experience. The great comfort of the Christian in this world of suffering is not that God suffers when we suffered, but that Christ Jesus suffered. He suffered. And that suffering informs all His ministry as our High Priest. At the right hand of God, He sympathizes with our weakness. The writer knows the objection we might offer in response. Yes, he may be able to sympathize with that struggle or that temptation, but not what I have personally endured. He hasn't been tempted as I have been tempted. He hasn't suffered as I have suffered. So the writer just takes that argument out of our mouths. He says in verse 15 that Jesus in every respect has been tempted as we are. It's very much like you. He's experienced all that this world and the flesh and the devil and sin could throw at him. As Thomas Schreiner said, he is intimately acquainted with the human condition and experienced the full range of temptation. 
Not that he has experienced every particular temptation or trial. He never lost a wife and was tempted not to trust God, feeling abandoned in that moment, but he experienced the loss of his intimate disciple. And he felt that abandonment in the garden and on the cross. He experienced every kind, the full range of suffering, pain, disappointment, discouragement, that would test his faith and that would trust his continued trust in God. Is God really worthy of my continued trust? Does he actually care? He is not unfamiliar with the temptations of his people. He is intimately familiar. He is tempted, was tempted as we are tempted. Even as He is like us, He is also unlike us, as the writer says. Because He faced every temptation, every trial without sin. He didn't face what I face. No, He didn't. He faced what you face even more severely. I can say that categorically. Whatever temptation you face, confronting sin or life circumstances or disappointment or pain, it may be great. It's not as great as what he faced. Because he never yielded to the temptation. He never gave in. It was just a continual onslaught of temptation after temptation after temptation, suffering after suffering, pain after pain. Will you continue to trust in God? C.S. Lewis captured this well when he wrote this. Said a silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five min- minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. Christ, because He was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. He was assaulted from without, throughout, Every single minute of his earthly life. And he never gave in. He knows what you face. He knows what you face exponentially. Because he never sinned. He sympathizes with you in your weakness. Second. He helps us in that weakness. He helps us in that weakness. If we go back to Hebrews 2, 
Look there at verse 18. You may remember that verse. We're told, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And he picks up that idea here in verse 16 of our chapter that there are these two great streams flowing from Christ to help us in our weakness, mercy and grace. As this verse is constructed, it refers to Christ's willingness to help us. He willingly extends mercy and grace. He doesn't simply sympathize with our weakness. He helps us in our weakness. The writer says it is help in time of need, or we might translate it there, it is timely help. Today's English version translation of the Bible, I think, captures it well. We shall find grace to help us just when we need it. That's what he gives. Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan, in reflecting upon this, notes that in Hebrews 2 we're told that Jesus is, quote, not ashamed to call us brethren. And yet when he ascended on high, the writer of Hebrews tells us that he was crowned with glory and honor. And yet the writer of Hebrews, or what, what uh, the Puritan Goodwin is pointing out as he's looking at it, he says, but do you remember when Paul or Saul at the time is persecuting the church? That as he's persecuting the church, it is Jesus as he is glorified on high that says down to Saul on earth, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? As Goodwin said, the head in heaven cries when the foot is trodden below. Cares as he's there. He helps. When Paul was writing in Timothy, and he says that a man that does not provide for his own family is worse than an unbeliever. For his brethren, for his bride, he's our father, everlasting father. Isaiah says, and that prophecy we read about this time of year. Does he not provide for those who are his family? As Esther said, so Christ says to us, how can I endure see the evil that befalls my people? He not only sympathizes, but helps us in our weakness when we need it. Often we struggle, struggle with anxiety, we struggle with fear, we can't see the end. So why would God allow this to occur? Why is it that this keeps happening? Can't he see that I've had enough? Why am I tempted in this way yet again? But he knows the end. He sees more than you do. He knows what is needed and when it is needed. And when it's needed, mercy and grace flow. He's not reserved in his giving. 
He is the fountain of mercy and grace. He is overflowing with it. When it is needed, it flows to you. He sits above where no question is remaining. We have a high priest who has suffered and secured our end. It would be laughable in heaven if it wasn't so offensive that you and I doubt his care. The Christians, the church triumphant as we call them, that are before his throne now with all of the angels and all of the archangels would say to you and I when we have that burden, whether we utter it or not, when we think, does he actually care? They would no doubt say to us, look at his hands. And what do you see on his hand? They would say, do you not see that your name is written on his hands? Those hands that you want to minister mercy and grace to you, he has you always before his face. Your name is written on his hand. But that isn't the only imprint on his hand. There are also nail scars in those hands. He has completely and finally secured your salvation. He loved you so much that He became man for your sake and suffered and died for your sake. How could we ever doubt His care above? As if it is less above than it was here. He knows. He sympathizes and He helps us in time of need. John Calvin said, Christ undertook our infirmities, willingly contended with them to attain a victory over them for us, but that wasn't the only reason, but also that we may feel assured that He is present with us whenever we are tried by them. As Goodwin wonderfully said, he said, Thy misery can never exceed His mercy. Your God is not indifferent to your struggles and temptations. Your God is not disinterested and distant. No, He is quite engaged and not engaged in a hypothetical way. He provides Help And so the great admonition that the writer of Hebrews gives you and I, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. With confidence, boldly. Isn't it so crazy? It's, it's absolutely absurd and it shows our utter fallenness that you and I, when we are in hard times, when we are facing discouragement, when it feels like the onslaught of temptation just keeps coming, when we are going through great struggles and pains, that it's often then that we turn away from God. It's the definition of insanity. That in the midst of that, that we turn away from Him. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying, do you not understand? You are to boldly approach this throne. 
This throne which none would dare approach ever. It's the judgment seat. It is deity that sits upon this. This is the throne that God was sitting upon when He cast Lucifer out of heaven. It is this throne that He's sitting upon when He cast Adam and Eve out of the garden. But the writer of Hebrews says to you and I, you are to boldly approach that throne. Why? Because it's a throne of grace to you. If you are in Christ, it is a throne of grace to you. He is not distant. He's not uncaring. He's not unfailing. There that you receive mercy. There that you find grace to help in time of need. So you come boldly. He is the great high priest. Friends, you will find the greatest rest when you have the greatest trust. And this high priest is worth your trust. High priest worthy of your trust. He sympathizes and he helps us in our weakness. Pray. Father, we do exalt you this morning. Thankful for your divine plan. That you and the Son. Spirit covenanted together back in eternity past that the Son would become flesh. He would take to Himself a true human body, true human soul. That He might forever be clothed with our humanity, that He might forever be the God-man who intercedes for us at Your right hand. We're thankful that He is not a priest like those who have gone before. That He is the great High Priest. Who is truly able to sympathize with us in our weakness. Not simply sympathize, but also help. Provide divine help. There is none like Him. We find that we are boldly approaching your throne of grace in Christ, our Lord and Savior. And finding timely help when it is needed. We pray this all in the strong name of Christ Jesus. Amen.